Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Amalia Mesa Baines, an internationally renowned artist, scholar, and curator who has been involved in the Chicano artist movement since the 1960s. A leading installation artist and MacArthur awardee, Amalia incorporates Chicano culture and folk traditions into her work, utilizing themes inspired by Catholic rituals, Mexican pre-Christian religious imagery, Chicano history, and female rites of passage. Throughout her career, she has expanded understandings of Latina artists' references to spiritual practices and vernacular traditions through her altar installations, articles, and exhibitions. As an author of scholarly articles and a nationally known lecturer on Chicano art, she has enhanced understanding of multiculturalism and reflected major cultural and demographic shifts in the United States. Her work has been shown at institutions such as the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Smithsonian, the Whitney Museum of American Art at Philip Morris, the New Museum, and international venues in Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela, Ireland, Sweden, England, France, and Spain, to name a few. As a cultural critic, she has co-authored, along with Bell Hooks, a book titled Homegrown, Engaged Cultural Criticism. It is essentially a work of activism through dialogue. The book was reissued in 2017. Amalia founded and directed the Visual and Public Art Department at California State University at Monterey Bay, where she is now Professor Emerita. Her community work includes board of trustee positions with the Mexican Museum in San Francisco and advisory boards for the Galleria de la Raza and the Social Public Resource Center in Los Angeles. Enjoy this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast and the brilliant Amalia Mesa Baines. It is so nice to have you join me today on my podcast. Welcome, Amalia. Thank you. So, how is it there in sunny California? Well, we've been sheltering in place for quite a long time. Um, I'm 77 and have some health conditions, so you know that means I don't go outside much. But I've taken up gardening, I'm baking bread, I'm doing what half of America is doing at home. And I have 10 acres and it's a big place, so it's easy to be here. And I think things are going well and we're all working best we can online. Yeah, yeah. Well, once again, thank you. You have such an impressive career. Thank you. I'm delighted to be able to share you today with listeners. So tell us about yourself. When did you first realize that you are an artist? Well, um, I'm, uh, as I said, 77. So my parents 
came into the U.S. from Mexico when they were quite young. My dad was born in 1913 during the Mexican Revolution. So I set that as a stage because, in fact, it's my family that directed me, which is very unusual because most families don't want their children to be artists, but I'm third generation. So uh, my father's uh, uncles, two of them, uh, one uncle was an artist, one brother was an artist. And in my generation, there are a couple of others. Although I would say I'm the one in my family who has made more of a career out of it. But it was important that as a child, I was given um, what materials they could find. You know, my father would collect um, butcher paper from the meat markets, the very tail ends that were crumbled up and he would cut them in squares and put rocks on them to flatten them. They got me an easel when I was like seven or eight. So I would say that I'm what I laughingly call the lifer. Mm-hmm. I have always known. I can't ever remember not thinking of myself, although I've had many other careers. But uh, it started in my family and uh, very much uh, in folk forms, crafting, making things with my parents and my, my extended family. So it's always been there. I, I, I feel very blessed that I had encouragement when I was young. Yeah, that is a treat. That is a treat. So share with us what motivates your art. Share with us what motivates you. I'm really curious to hear about your installation work. Well, once again, as in most cases, you need to always examine your own foundation. And the next level after my family was the Chicano movement. And I came into that um, already having finished uh, my art training at San Jose State. And I was in a program called Teacher Corps. And so my mentor, Yolanda Garfias, who was Oaxacan, introduced me to people in San Francisco at uh, the Galeria de la Raza and Casa Hispana de Bellas Artes. And so from that moment on, which I would describe starting in the late 60s, when the first Chicano shows were going to Delano, I felt a kind of call uh, to work within the community and to create art that had meaning. And since my own family had home altars, then um, the introduction to the Days of the Dead, which was really um, a kind of a cultural reclamation that Chicanos engaged in beginning in the late 60s, middle to late 60s, I really sort of informally became um, an altarista, somebody who made altars. Um, And they're not directly religious as much as they are spiritual. And so that was the bedrock of how I began working in community. Um, And at that time, because in the United States, unlike Mexico, you can't go to the graveyards and celebrate. You know, there are health rules. They're locked up at six o'clock. So we began to use community galleries. So beginning in the really mid-70s, I formally took on the tradition of the Days of the Dead, uh, the offerings to the dead. And that expanded over years into other spiritual forms, but always within the notion of creating um, spaces for, in a way, a kind of history making. We didn't have a history well known outside of our own communities. And I would say that like many communities of color, we were trying to carve out a space uh, for ourselves in which we could in some way enjoy the presence of a sense of belonging. So making the altars began as a spiritual practice, but evolved quickly into a kind of history process. 
And uh, that's really how I began. And I began amongst other artists like Carmen Lomascaras and Renee Yanez. So I didn't do it alone at the beginning, although later I would say I turned it into a form. And then the art world around the 80s started thinking towards installation art. So I didn't describe myself that way, but I became described that way by others. <laughs> so I had my own form, which I still engage in. And, and it's, it's interconnected with my own spiritual practice at home with a home altar with my husband. And in many ways, my art and my life are, are not really separate. They're kind of, of a one, as it were. Yeah, that's wonderful. And can you recall any particular artists that influenced you as a, as a young person, um, as your career? I, well, I really have to say that as a young person, I didn't know any artists. I, I, you know, I was raised in the Santa Clara Valley before there was anything like Silicon Valley. It was very rural. My father had been a farm worker and my mother had been a maid and they uh, both went into cannery work and then my mother stayed home to raise us. So the only art I ever saw was in the Catholic church, in the church bulletins. I have a little shoebox, my mother said, with all these cutouts of, and really they're they're like Caravaggio. They're like these famous (laughs) artists whose images were used by the church to basically inculcate us. And I loved them. I didn't know what they were. I never went to museums until I was probably in my Uh twenties. You know, I, I didn't have that experience. But I would say that in my own life, I have been influenced and continue to be influenced by my peers. Carrie Mae Weems, Judy Baca, Marta Morena Vega, Mildred Howard. I mean, and mostly there are women. I, I tend to aggregate my work with the company of other women because I feel sometimes as though women as a group take on work better than men as a group. So it's been my practice to work as much as I can with other women. Mm-hmm. We call it the comadres or the co-mothers. I didn't <laughs> have cute. children and many of my peers also did not have children. Carmen Lomas Garza, Judy Baca, many of them didn't. And so um, we built our network as you do in, in the Mexican community of compradasco, which means the interconnectedness of co-parenting. But what we made were not babies, we made art. Hmm. And so I have this very large community of comadres. And because my husband is African-American and I was in some ways educated in his family, I would say that gravitates me toward many other um, people of color, particularly sisters. So people like Mildred and Howard and Carrie Mae Weems and Lowry Sims. I wrote a book with Bell Hooks. They are my peers. They are the women I look to for encouragement and inspiration. And we're all in the same battle. You know, um, I just started the project with Terry Mae Weems called Enough, which is the campaign against Trump for the election. And we're doing billboards. And I think it was covered in the New York Times. And I did mine with my, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Angelica Muro. So we did a, a poster that says Basta. And on the background, instead of an American flag, it's a Sarape as a flag. So I look to those women and other activists as the kind of fuel for doing what we do. When I began making artwork, it was mostly out of two sources, either um, confrontation with issues and concerns, things that really irritated me or upset me. And the second was really healing. I've been through 
a lot of death in my life. You know, I'm from the age generation and um, lost many friends. And through the years, um, death became really a kind of companion. It was very Mexican in that way. And because I worked in Days of the Dead and connected myself with other people interested in healing, that's really how I make art. I make it from things that I think need to be confronted, histories that need to be told, and then from healing, of maintaining the balance of our spiritual life, of trying to keep ourselves as well as we can be in the midst of so much stress and trauma. And of course, right now is the apex of all of that. And um, I'm working now with Marta Vega uh, on a project that has to do with uh, the Creative Justice Initiative. And so we're I'm going to be doing the panel on spirituality because that's one of my ways of dealing with justice is really to claim those practices that are ours, um, that may not be understood by people outside of our communities, but those are the practices that keep us healthy. Do you consider yourself an activist? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I don't know any Chicana that doesn't. I mean, we're sort of in the DNA. I remember (laughs) once being at a school where the provost, who finally we did force her out, but um, she had written um, a paper about Mexican women as being submissive. So that was like, you know, that was the sort of death knell for her. She probably should never have written that. (laughs) And so we laughed and said, who is she talking about? So, no, I am an activist because I don't think you have any choice. Right. You know, art is about the expression of humanity and humanity is always at stake when injustice occurs. And we grew up in, lived through every form of discrimination. And I learned from my husband, you know, who's African-American, how he went through it. He helped me in many ways. I think that my life would have been vastly different if I had never met Richard Baines, which I met him in the 60s. So we have gone through all of this struggle together. These last days we've been, oh, discussing and talking about John Lewis and Black Lives Matter and all of our own personal struggles to be an interracial couple. And I don't even think it's interracial. We're black and brown. We're just who we are. But, But that kind of work is inevitable, I think, if you're an artist of color. I don't think you can sidestep it. And people do it differently. You know, I, I make altars, I retell histories, I recognize the lives of women in homenajes or homages who I think have been overlooked, and, and I keep the company of people who I respect and whose integrity, I think, is an inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yes. So earlier you commented that you wrote a book with bell hooks. Yes. Would love to share with listeners that experience. So tell us about the book and your relationship with her. Well, I'll tell you how it came about. Belle and I met in the 80s um, in, at NYU on a panel. And I think I uh, was supposed to be on a panel with another Latina, but you know, they only get one at a time. <laughs> so they moved my, me on the panel that Belle was on. And we had not met, but we knew who we were. And it turned out we were both telling grandmother's stories. So when the panel was over, she said, hey, we should talk. I said, yeah, let's talk. So then we began these conversations. And every time she was in the Bay Area in San Francisco, where I was then living, she would say, oh, Maya, come and talk with me. I'm so tired. I can't do another stand-up. You know, she was very popular then. So I was her kind of... Um, kind of sous chef, as it were. So I would come along, and she'd always say, I need two chairs, because Amalia's going to talk with me. So we would chat and talk for the audience. You know? 
And we had so many overlaps. Our lives were so parallel in every way. And so one day she said to me, we've done this like three or four times. And I wanted her to come to my university, Cal State University at Monterey Bay. This was, I think, in the 90s, late 90s. And so I asked her if she would come. She said, yes, but I have an idea. While I'm there, why don't we make a book? I said, how are we going to do that? She goes, okay, well, we'll just sit in your kitchen every morning for an hour and you get the tape recorder and we'll just talk. We'll pick 10 topics and we'll just talk. So we did it for five days and we finished it all. It went to be transcribed not very well because a lot of the Spanish names got screwed up. And eventually we did get it published, although the first go around with South End Press, there were some problems with it. It, it, it was called um, Homegrown. Uh, something like cultural critiques, or I can't even remember the title anymore. But then it was redone. That was 2006. Then it was redone by uh, another press in 2016. And I'm much more satisfied with that. And it really is almost so pertinent now because it's a black-brown discussion about feminism, about spirituality and religiosity, about education, about civil rights. It's everything we've lived. And we even talk about the Vietnam, the Guadalupe, and Frida Kahlo because we both have attachments to them. So um, it, it's easily found. It's easily found. And I'm, I'm rather proud of it because she is someone has been a kind of um, soul sister, for lack of a better description, someone who I admire and whose work I followed for a long time before I ever met her. And she's extremely prolific. I mean, it's not easy being a woman of color and telling the truth because people don't always want to hear it. But um, that was one of the greatest experiences of my life, in fact, those mornings over coffee with her and then going shopping in the afternoons. (laughs) Yes, we both love your job. So what's the title of the book? It's called Homegrown. Um, Gosh, you think I would have it here? Well, you know, things leave our brain. Something cultural critiques. There's a subtitle, but the the first title is Homegrown. Okay. And the image on the cover of the new version, the 2016 one, is one of my prints. It's the image of my mother and my grandmother. Wonderful. And when I first asked you about your relationship with her, you said that you both had grandmother's stories. Yes. Can you elaborate on that? Well, she told her story first. And it was about her grandmother's house as a house of aesthetics, a place that she could escape to where there was beauty. She was raised in a large family, rural. Things were not easy. And I'm listening to it and thinking, oh, my God, because my grandmother's house was the house of the spirit. So I would go to my grandmother's house and fiddle around on her home altar. She never would talk about what happened in Mexico because my grandfather had been executed. They were on the wrong side of the revolution because he worked for the army. Um, I think he found supplies or something. And they cut off all her, her hair and she, she wandered around for a while. She was a bit in shock. Her brothers were in a military school and she had my father and a newborn baby. And finally her brothers found her and then they all escaped into the U.S., But I think it had been such a traumatic moment in her life. She lost so much, and she was only 20 years old, imagine. And so um, it made her an absolutely powerful and resilient human being. My grandmother was like 
the epitome of, of female power in my experience. <laughs> but but in any event, Bill and I that day discovered that both of us had grandmas who were the source of some part of the making of us, the aesthetic and spiritual making of us. And that's really the connection. I remember what it is, homegrown, engaged cultural criticism. Thank you. Fabulous. <laughs> and <laughs> what edition? You said 2016. What edition was that? That's a second. Second. Okay. Okay. And and I would like for you to just comment on how do you feel the book applies today? I mean, you, you commented on it slightly, but I, I'd like to hear more. I mean, is it a book that you feel young people should be reading? Yes, I do. I do. I think, you know, one of the things we tackle both from both a perspective was feminism. So there's third wave and there's so much discussion about it. But, you know, in my experience, I was much more engaged in uh, the civil rights based on, at that time, what was considered ethnicity as, as a Chicana. Uh, I think we're both, uh, think, think of it as race, but that's not how it's described. And so for me, I didn't even dip my toe into feminism. Judy Baca was my only connection because she was with Judy Chicago and a number of other groups, Suzanne Lacey, and I exhibited with them once in a while at the Women's Building in LA. But in general, I kind of stayed in my own lane. Belle had a kind of interlocking. She had her own definition of feminism from the point of view of a person of color. And so we both talked about, for me, it was the heritage of the labor movements. Women like uh, Josefina Bright, uh, Emma Tenayuca, Dolores Huerta, those are to me the godmothers of feminism among Chicanas because mm -hmm. they battled for labor rights. They were not middle-class women and they weren't concerned in so many respects about uh, their relationship to their husbands or their brothers or sons. They were much more concerned with uh, sustaining their families through their work. And, and Belle and I would go back and forth on feminism talking about how the language didn't really suit women of color in many respects, but there was no alternative language. So you sort of may do. I think the other parts of it that were really important were the chapters that we wrote on immigration and education. And we updated in 2016, not even beginning to understand how bad it was going to get. <laughs> and even then we were talking about, um, the ways in which the shared racial history of Latinos and Blacks, which is, you know, the tercer raíz or the third root of Africa. I know that Oprah just uh, positioned a new book out on the caste system. I'm trying to remember the title of it. it it's all over the internet now. But I, I, we got the book and I scurried through the table of contents, trying to find something on the Casta's painting, because I thought maybe that's where she had gotten it from. And I found that, no, she had actually gone straight to uh, research in India and the Nazi Germany, as well as, you know, the very fertile ground of uh, slavery and, and, you know, oppression and Jim Crow laws in the U.S. But one of the things that I think tied Bell and I together over the years was the whole discussion of the idea of racial mixing and that in the new world in the americas they tried to codify it so miscegenation didn't exist in mexico there was something called mestizaje which means the mixing of the races so they took it for granted that the races would mix 
So they didn't prevent it, but they tried to codify it and control it. So words that we disparage in the U.S. now, like mulata and sambo and so many derogatory words for black people come out of the names of the originally 16 categories, but later 54 categories of racial mixing. So there was the Indian, the Spanish, and the African. And those combinations were described in the most beautiful paintings, the cast paintings or the castas. And so they're really a kind of oddly fascinating foundation and painful one of how we came to be understood not just in the United States of North America, but the Americas. This, this gives you insight to Brazil, to Colombia, even Uruguay, all the places where 95% of the slave trade went and only 5%, more or less, came into the U.S. So what we thought of as our problem was a, a space of negotiation, conflict, uh, representation, identity, all over the Americas. And people finally in Mexico came, I'd say, in about the 60s to acknowledge it. And they call it the third root of the tercer raíz, and there are studies of it. And there's more and more people like Tony Gleaton and others, he's passed now, but photographers uh, documented the presence of the African diaspora, particularly on the, the Mexican coast. So it is, you know, one of the things I feel that needs to be discussed more. And I was sort of hoping in this new book on cast that there, that link might have been made, but I don't think so. But that's fine because it's an extraordinary book. And I think the more that we know about how we come to be with all of our racist attitudes and our sense of entitlement, and I'm speaking of white people, uh, the more we can find a way to heal ourselves. You know, what is going on now as a result of Black Lives Matters is extraordinarily important. And it helps all of us. It helps every one of us to understand where we fit into all of it. My family is part Black. My grandmother was definitely mixed race. She married an African Black. My uncles were part Black. My father came from her first husband, but I grew up all of my life with people who call themselves Mexican, but who were ostensibly black. And so when I met Richard, it wasn't unusual that I would find him comforting and familiar. He was really just a part of the family that I'd grown up in. And ironically, when he first met my uncles, he said, you know, they're black, don't you? And I, would, I was very naive. And I said, oh, no, they're Mexicans. Mexicans come in every color. And later, we laughed about it now. It took years for me to kind of, duh, figure out that the Mexican identity sort of subsumes all races, but we are really multiracial people. So that's why things like ethnicity don't really fit the category. I never know what to mark on census. I change my mind every few years. <laughs> Oh, this discussion is so fascinating. I'm loving every bit of it. I'm sorry we're not talking about art. We're supposed to be no, talking no, about No, 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 no. We were supposed to be talking about you, so this is all good. So now we're winding down, and my last question was going to be, what do you feel is your role as an artist? But in many ways, you've already answered that. Would you like to comment? Yeah, I'll try to be succinct. Let's say that I think that as an artist, my role 
And because I'm older now, and in some ways I'm part of a legacy, you know, of a generation of Chicano activists that were the first. So I think of myself often as an artist, as a role model, as, um, as an advocate for justice, and always as a healer. You know, I've had to deal with my own health crisis many times over, and with the loss of my parents, my sister, my brother, uh, my dearest friends, uh, my colleagues, um, my sisters in arms, all of that. And, and when you get older, you lose a lot of people along the way. So healing is very important to me at this stage in my life. But if you give me a good battle, I tell you I'm there. <laughs> uh, all Martha Vega has to do is call me up and say, Amalia, she's that voice. Uh, I need you now. And I go, I'm ready. You know, I like reporting for duty as it were. So, you know, I can always be counted on as old as I am, as decrepit at moments as I am. I have um, still enough rage left in me to try and kick a door in every once in a while. And if that doesn't work, then I light my sage, I do my prayers, and I really hope for the best because I think we're in an extraordinary time. It may be the last gasp of white supremacy, and that's why the battle is so pitched. It may be the beginning of a fantastically integrated generation of activists who stood the line for Black Lives Matters, even when it was outside of their lived experience. We are at a moment a crossroads that's so powerful. And so people have to vote. People have to go out and say, this is the future I want. This is the life I want. This is the country I want. And this is the world I want. And that's where I am now. And the young people, thank goodness, they're they're picking up. Oh, yes. On where we left off back then. Yeah, no, it's it's wonderful. And it I just love talking to you. And one of my passions is making sure that people understand and appreciate other cultures. Yes. So inviting you to talk today is educational. People got to learn about the Chicanos and that in that world, in that space, everyone is as fabulous as everybody else. (laughs) Yes. uh, You know, so I appreciate this time with you very much. Oh, you're welcome. And I thank you very much for including me in these conversations. I do really, I really, really do enjoy it. And I feel that you're doing a service because it's the right time for the right conversations. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.